0: Hey, y'all, it's that time of the week again. It's Thursday, so it's time for Black Fashion History. We're gonna sit down and chit-chat again about all of the beautiful melanated people around the world that have contributed so much to the fashion industry. Here is where we love on them, we celebrate them, we tell their stories, and we celebrate the newcomers of black fashion and mark their spot in history as well. Of course I'm your host Tanika Russ and I want to start off this episode by saying I am so sorry. I appreciate you all tuning in every single week to hear interesting stories about people in fashion. I don't take it for granted. Um, And last week, I just life just got the better of me. (laughs) And I'm so sorry about that. It was totally due to poor planning on my part. And I just, I really have no excuses, but I'm just asking that in this here month of February, where we're supposed to be celebrating blackness, that y'all will have some grace for you girl and forgive me, okay? <laughs> and I know I did y'all wrong last week by just dipping out and not saying anything. So this week I have an extra long episode for you. This is, so far I think this is our longest episode and it's my way of making up for missing last week. Um, and it kind of gives you a chance to double up. So today I'm presenting my conversation with Dr. Aziza Brathwaite Bay. Now, Dr. Bay is a fashion designer. She's a costume designer. She's an educator. She's a recording artist and she's a cultural historian. If you are a music lover and a fashion lover, then this is going to be the extra special treat episode for you. Dr. Bay details her life and decades long career in music and in fashion and she shares it all and i'm talking about everything from the moment that she moved to paris to study haute couture, to turning down an internship with Givenchy, to her career in fashion design, her career in music, uh, her career in movies, and working with Sandra Bullock, to everything that she's doing nowadays with teaching and writing her memoir. So we're going to get into our conversation with her right after this break. So you want to start a podcast, right? I know it can seem really daunting and complicated to have to think through how to record it or how to edit it and even how to upload it. But don't worry about any of that. I'm about to give you the only tool you need to create an A1 top-of-the-line podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free, There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even start making money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Now all you have to do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM. That's A N C H O R FM to get started today. Now let's get back into our content.
1: This has been a long journey for me, and you know, I certainly most of my life um, have been categorized as a, uh, you know, a, a person of, of uh, well African descent or um, how uh, colored or. All those terms that they called us in the forties and the fifth. I'm I'm a great grandmother, so I mean I'm just trying to contextualize <laughs> this. <Yeah. laughs> um, so, but when I was uh, in Europe, that that certainly changed because I was accepted in a totally different way, especially in the arenas that I was working. Um, you know, in in um, the performing arts, and and also when I was in school there at the Chambre Syndicale de la Couture Parisienne in Paris.
2: Oh my gosh. That's where you went?
1: Yes, yeah, so so the, I was in the high, the highest top of my class and got my certificate in the Superior degree of haute Couture. So I'm just saying that um and that was a great major feat because I didn't have I didn't really have a master of the, of the French language until I really got there. I mean, I would have my little book, you know, <laughs> when I go into the restaurant, I can ask, it, you know, that's an extent of it, my French before I left. And so I left um, when I was uh, 20 to go to France against my parents' will and um, pioneered through all of that, you know, starving pretty much, but keeping my grades up and had high, the highest grades, the only one that was was a little bit lower than most of my grades, which was like, you know, in the high 90s, um, was in History of Costume because in that, you had a lot of historical documentation you had to write on your exams. And I had a photographic memory at that time, so I would study it in, in the English and then read the French and memorize, take a photograph of, of what that was in French then I could, on my exams, write about it. But it was certainly a challenge. So those grades were a tad lower, like maybe low to mid-90s. But in any event, I prevailed mostly because my teacher, Madame Fillet, really believed in me and um, supported me because I had never had money for my my supplies or anything. I could barely eat. I was mostly eating like a small lunch at school, and then um, for dinner, I'd have a baguette in water. So my budget was a dollar fifty a day because I had to pay my tuition, my hotel, and you know. At first, I was living in a hotel with no heat and hot water on Rue Saint Jacques, and then my that was my first semester. My second semester, I did get a studio apartment, but um, that was like eighty dollars a month, including utilities. <laughs> So i can giving you a rough idea of how that was, and I was singing at the American basses on weekends with my guitar, and uh, that's how I got, you know, my had made my income because I didn't have a support fam- uh, system. My family was totally against me going to Europe at that age. They thought a tender age, so I ended up leaving home so I could leave from my own apartment. And uh, so they weren't up for supporting me. I mean, I I would say maybe they sent me a little help now and then, thirty dollars or fifty dollars. The most I think they ever sent me was two hundred and fifty dollars when I was coming home back on the boat um, on the Kuna line. So I took a boat over there,
2: scared as death to death.
1: And you took uh, a boat to Paris? I took it. Went to La Havre. Went into oh. yeah. But I had no. I had not very much money. I had graduated from FIT with my apparel uh, associate's degree in apparel design. It was a miserable heart. This was I graduated in '62, so I went there um, six, 1960 to 1962. There were seven people of color in the entire university at that time. It was just the C building, and they had three divisions, which now is so many divisions you couldn't, you couldn't even count them. But they had the apparel de- design business uh, division. They had the illustration division and merchandising management. And out of all three of those schools, there were about seven of us. So when we graduated, Madam Zeeland, who I will never, never forget, told us, well, there's no point in us sending you out for interviews because no one's going to hire you. And at that point is when I said, well, you know, kiss my toes, I'm going to Paris. <laughs> I was always sort of just like you can't keep me down no matter what, but you know it was very tough times, let's to say the least. I worked three jobs. I was working uh, in, in the village. That so started working as an assistant, um, well, sample maker, assistant designer to a young designer on Greenwich Avenue at in, uh, Mitzi, which became Seshua was quite a, quite a store during that period. Uh, that between my um my uh eleventh and twelfth was no tenth and eleventh grade. So I was fifteen, but my because my birthday was in July, my mom said, Okay, she'd gone down there of course and checked everybody out. You know, that's the way my mom was and then she said you can work. So that was the summer between my tenth and eleventh grade. So I was fifteen going on sixteen, I started working there and I worked with her all the way up until the time I left for Paris. Plus, I was working at the uh, the Cafe Wall. I'm sure you heard of that on on um, um, on Greenwich Avenue. No, that was that's where Sushua was. It was on. Um, uh, you look it up. The Cafe Wall was the, one of the most uh, popular cafes in the village during the sixty early sixties, and also up through to probably the seventies. That's where I met most of my friends, Richie Haven, Richie Pryor. Exuma, um, Peter Paul and Mary, Jose uh, Feliciano, all of them, all of us were, you know, were singing and uh, with our baskets on the on the uh, stage for the hootenannies we used to call them. People would put money in the in the kitty there for us. So that's how it was, and in those days for us and um, most of my dear friends, Richie's gone, Richie Haven's gone, Richie Pryor's gone. Zoom is gone. Um, a lot of those old friends of mine, you know, went. So that was what I did. I did that, and then once a week I modeled at a school down in, on, um, um, uh, what is the Lower East Side? It was an art school, and I to modeled for um, fashion classes, you know, that once a week. So I had three jobs to 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 prepare to go to Paris. So I had enough, I thought, for my tuition my fare and to what living uh on five dollars a day i bought that book um and i said okay i'm gonna budget this out and i'll have <laughs> enough to survive well i was broke <laughs> by my classes started in the end of august i was broke by um probably november <laughs> uh, my tuition was paid and uh you know as i said my um Rent I was paying. I was living in a hotel in Seoul, Jacques with no heat, no hot water. You know, there was no toilet really. You had two areas where you put your feet on in a hole in the the ground and newspaper for um, for you to you know what I'm saying (laughs) to clean yourself. So that was uh, how I lived the first semester. And so I started, uh, as I said, singing at the American bases in In Paris and around France, around Paris, really, on uh, Fontainebleau and play small towns around uh, the area, so that's how I was able to eat and buy some of my supplies but madame filet she she supported me so much, so much so that um when I graduated and she was so as i said gay, I would come in, she'd have my muslin on my table. My exams will be paid. I couldn't have done it without her. Um, she wanted me to work for a Givenchy, and, of course, I love Um He was probably one of my favorites because that was a big part of a curriculum, going to the various uh, design houses and um, seeing how the, they, the couturiers actually worked and operated their businesses. But it was for not for a salary, it was for a stipend 'cause I to them it was like, Okay, you're learning. Well, I had no support to support me so that was probably I, I would say the one thing in my life over my career that hurt me the most that I couldn't take that uh internship because the stipend would not have allowed me to survive and it was gonna be intense, you know, in long hours. Mm-hmm. So Anyway, that's when I decided to uh my, actually how it happened. I was in my uh final uh, final semester or in June I graduated in june and big big Jones who um was a musician uh from from the states would have been in Europe for a long time, was putting together a group called Big Jones and the Dean sisters and he heard me playing with my guitar at um the bases in the bass in Paris and asked me if I wanted to be a part of that. So that's how I got into, um, with this particular group, um, I began designing the gowns for uh, for the Dean sisters and doing the choreography, because of course, you know, we start out and I, I wanted to be a dancer when I was little. <laughs> that's the first thing. And so all of those, those uh, loves and things were coming together. I love to dance, I love to sing, but, um, I said, Oh well I'm gonna have a backup is for fashion. Fashion will be my backup. That's what I always thought of that fashion that fashion would be and not my main career until I saw how hard it was in that fashion I mean the um performing arts and the recording um industries. So that's how I got into the singing and performing when I graduated uh with the group throughout Europe, which was such a, a you know such an extreme difference you know from adverse poverty and starvation to um, seeing casinos and and major theaters throughout Europe making a movie in uh, Manchester, England with BBC called Carnival that we were there a month. TV in Barcelona and people storming you you know, get your autograph and all that. That's when it shook me. I said, you know, these people don't know what I just came from a couple of weeks ago, you know. Um, And uh, I began to then become more conscious and more interested in social justice and and also in particular what was going on in this country regarding people of color or African Americans um, at that time. So that's when my social action um, sort of, you know, opened up. So that was pretty much my experience um, in Europe, which was quite extraordinary. I met some of the greats. We made a record on Bel Air Records with uh, Kenny Clark and... um, um, but Powell and Memphis Slim and Donald Byrd, we did his first album using voices, you know, as instruments. And he came back and he did that major album here. But we were the first one to really do it when it was just, you know, beginning idea in his head. And so those experiences and the people that I worked with and met um, put me in a whole different place in my thinking about who I was and when I came back to the states, uh, I was refusing to be put in that, you know, little box. But I fought and fought, and of course that was an ongoing battle um, to, uh, you know, get through the those those uh, racist experiences, which I had to sometimes just say, okay, I'm going to just go through this, do what I have to do when I came back here after having done casinos and theater and you know major theaters all over the world. Um I I record my first year back, sixty five, I had a recording with uh, Roulette Record and I should do um a lot of background singing and you know, like for different albums for other big major artists. That's how I started. You know, because you can't—you don't just come from another country and come back and you got a job instantly. So I was doing background singing for different companies on Broadway in the '40s, and finally led, landed this contract to do a record with Roulette. And it hit the charts; it was on the top forty, but it was certainly not the kind of music I wanted to sing. I was singing jazz and folk and soft rock, and this was sort of like a you know, what was happening at the time, some crazy little, you know, thing that (laughs) I didn't like. But, you know, I guess it was accepted. Um, And then we went out of business, sold it to the the company to Columbia Records, and um, uh, then I didn't hear about it. You know, so this is prior, before Motown, right? So years later... I'm, I'm, I'm teaching, um, I was at, you know, the university in Cambridge, Leslie University, and um, teaching graduate students and teaching in the national program where, um, you know, I would be, go, I'd go to Georgia, South Carolina, these different states. We were in 24 different states. And I'm teaching graduate students who are primarily teachers of grade school students. And, you know, I did a little introduction to myself in a real rough bio and I mentioned, you know, the record and one of my students came back the next day with the record with a copy of the recording and played it in class. I said, Where did you get that? I said, Oh, I looked it up and there it was. <laughs> come to find out, Columbia Records had uh took the record and was playing it in England, making bucko bucks. I never got a penny for royalties, right? Because of the way that oh, we know. Had- no, that's the way it was before Motown. Oh, all of us artists, so-called black artists, in the 40s and 50s, uh, and, you know, for the most part, just got ripped off because what? how would you know? I had no idea. We're talking about, okay, made the record in 65, and I find out it must have been um, maybe 2000. 11 or 12 when I found this out, when my student came back with it. And then I started doing some search. And I come up and I see the record uh, on it was called us uh, Vinyls of the 60s, um, the Diva Singers of the 60s. And they got cut, because we didn't have on 45s. They didn't have pictures of the artists, only on albums. So what I found out, I looked it up, and I see, okay, it says Elena, um, evening time, and they have pictures of some Europeans, European women, the divas of the 60s.
2: I said, what the hell? Oh, no. <laughs> no, they still have that picture up there. I said, what the hell?
1: So how they would do it, they put European, you know, even in this country before that album. Do you look at some of those early albums from the 50s? They never put pictures of us on the covers, you know? That was much later. This is how I'm trying to explain to you how over and over and over again, we have gotten uh, ripped off um, and marginalized and disforgotten. And so, and you work so hard, you know, it's been a very hard journey to just put yourself in those places to uh, follow your dream, which is what I did when I came back to the States and I went through that. I got out of the, you know, okay. Roulette would send me to these, send me to these clubs, you know, these dives to promote the record. People are drinking, and you know, first of all, I didn't drink. I know, you know, that was not my lifestyle. Drinking and smoking and talking loud. I said, this is not for me. And I said, close that door to be an entertainer. Let me pursue my fashion, um, my Plan B, I used to call it. And so that round that time, I met Arthur McGee, and he had, became Plan A. <laughs> yes. So uh, that's when I met him, and he had a studio on St. Mark's Place, in um, on on the east side, uh, of the village, and um, I worked as his assistant uh, designer there, and uh, he was at that time selling to some of the major department stores. Mm-hmm. He had a, a Jewish partner who represented him. That's how he was really able to get out there and you know get his, get his line out there, like go to Saks Fifth Avenue and see windows all the way around the store with just his work. And they never called him Black fashion designer, American designer Arthur McGee. So that's that's was my um, my experience at that, in those early days with the industry and how he was smart enough to navigate that, to know you have to put, you know, Jewish guy out there in front, which I did later on myself by having, you know, Jewish uh, reps going out and selling to my stores and whatever, because once they saw me, then it was over, you know?
2: So before you made your pivot from music to fashion, like what initially sparked your interest in fashion?
1: Okay, my mother was a fashionista, you know, and she uh, she was born and raised in Wilmington, North Carolina. So I said her father was Salute Cherokee, and her mother was uh, Ethiopian Hebrew. So she they they had eight kids, you know, and uh, mom was one of them. And so it was really hard. They were both entrepreneurs, um, and she made all her clothes when she was in high school. So when she came up north and married my dad. My dad, who was um, from Barbados, you know, mixed ancestry. So they married, and um, she started making my clothes and some of my brother's clothes even. She did everything. She was so creative, both my parents, high school grads, but they did better than I ended up doing financially in this world. You know, they were city workers. They worked hard, but they were both creative. So she she had this knack of making the house look beautiful and making us look. I'm like a million dollars. No, I was born and raised in East Harlem, 108th Street, and the projects on, um, river, on uh, the uh, east side, Riverside Dr- Drive, you know, near the, um, you know, the Riverside Drive, not, not Riverside Drive, east East side drive, you know, not, not on the west, on the east side, right on the water, um, I, the projects on 108th and, and um, East River Drive. So we, we that's where I was born and moved to Queens when I was uh, eight. And so we had a, my dad bought a little house. He was a vet. And mom did everything in the house in terms of covering this furniture. But she was very creative. And dad was very creative, like doing carpentry and all. So they worked it. So we never knew we were poor, you know. we I mean, we only maybe had one outfit for church, one outfit, one or two outfits for school and um, uh, one for play, and you know, one pair of shoes for each of those. but We thought we were living large, you know. So mom was the one. So what happened was, I was in the seventh grade, thirteen years old, and I had I used to buy uh, my mother used to buy rather from Patterson and Silks on Jamaica Avenue. We're in Queens now. We integrated our community, our neighborhood in Queens, which was not a pleasant uh, experience. So my whole elementary school was uh, very, very uh, difficult to say the least, with the racism that I incurred. Um, there being one of two people of color in the universe, in the uh, elementary school, PS 123, getting beat up every day and called names. And anyway, we moved out there. They throwing rocks at the window and calling us niggers. And um, and I'm like, what are they talking about? You know. Because then where I was in East Harlem during the 40s, well, well it was a blended neighborhood, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Italians, Jews, and, and African-Americans, you know. So we all played and it was all good. So this was a, a different experience. Anyway, getting back to mom, 13, seventh grade, and I went up to Jamaica Avenue. I'm looking at um, some, some uh, you know, what do you call remnants. Cause that's what mom would buy. She would buy remnants, the best quality stuff, you know, good black gabardines and you know really good wools. And so I bought this piece of um gabardine. I never forget it. it was a blue gabardine piece of fabric, enough to make a skirt. And I was looking through the patterns and I bought a pattern that was um a French pattern. Bought it back and asked mom to sew it. You know that's what she always did. So. It sat on the sewing machine, sat on the sewing machine. And I kept begging, begging her, Mom, when are you going to sew my, because it was a straight skirt. That was going to be revolutionary in junior high school for me. You know, I'd be the first one wearing that kind of look. You know, everything was the big, big skirts and the black and white shoes and white books and all of that. So it sat there and sat there. And finally, because mom was, she didn't work hard. She was working at Bellevue and took an hour to get there and an hour back. So she was tired, you know. But so finally, I picked up that pattern, cut it out, and made it myself. That That's where it started. And after that, the rest is history. I go up to Tandy's and I get scraps of leather. I was making my shoes, my pocketbooks, my belts, and my jewelry and everything. So no one would not know, you know, that. Um, they thought, well, I was just this fly of fashion because <laughs> it morphed from the pattern to then taking different patterns and putting them together. I'd like a sleeve from this pattern, I'd like a collar from that, the bodice from that, and I started doing doing that. Then I started cutting out my patterns out of newspaper and, um, and brown paper bags and making my patterns from that. So that's how it progressed until um, – I started working with 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 Mitzi in 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 Greenwich Village, and so she helped me kind of navigate that um, the pattern making piece because I was I did that before I was doing and working with her before I ever went to FIT. So I'm saying this was in high school, so that started me with some uh, getting some idea of the patterns and how they're supposed to fit and how you're supposed to have notches. <laughs> Stuff like that. So um, anyway, that's where my fashion
2: interest began, and it never ended. Then later on, what inspired you to say, you know what, I want to branch out and create my own label? Because you talked about having opportunities, like you said, to intern at um, Givenchy, and then I'm sure you've had other opportunities to work for someone else. But what made you want to create your own
1: Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm working on my memoirs, and so I was reading letters from Europe that I'd written my parents. And one of the ones I just was reading, um, I was asking my dad to um, find someone who could do my labels. And I remember, and I have it in the letter written out like in script, Elena Brafe. And um, I said, this is what I want my label to look like. Because I was born Elaine Braithwaite. So when I, got, when I started singing, well, first of all, the French did not accept Elaine. I said, Elaine, that's Elena in French and in Italian. And I said, well, that looks better as a professional name. This is, you know, the time of singing, right? So and then the Braithwaite, I just cut in half. So it became Elena Bray. That's That was what I began singing under. And then that was going to be my label. I remember as I have it written out, Dad, please find someone can uh, do my labels and my cards. You know? <laughs> and I had it written out the way I wanted it. So this was just before I left Paris to come back home. And I thought I would hit the ground running. And I had asked him to uh, find some of my friends that I used to sing with you know in school cuz i was singing with uh, a group in June called the sweethearts we sang a cappella in junior high and high in high school as well and and some other friends that i had who were in the business and uh th- you know those are my only connections that i really could remember so when i got back i started working on that as w- while i was doing you know the this the um demos and all of that for these uh, these uh record companies trying to prepare and make you know get things set up then i i met Arthur and then i had by that time had my label and uh made and i started selling to small specialty stores in new york and um what i would have was you know i'd had stitchers I remember my my uh cousin, my father's cousin, really, sort of, my second cousin had just come from Barbados, and as you know, the Bayesians are the best stitchers, and he used to make my my clothes, you know, I'd get orders, you know, I'd have maybe four or five pieces in the line and different colors, and um, people, the stores would order, you know, small orders, and she would sew them. I'd cut them, make the pattern, cut them uh, after designing them, cutting them, um, she give them to her, and she would sew them. So that's how that started slowly, until um, Arthur went to to work on Seventh Avenue, worked for Stacy Ames. It was a Tammy Andrews division, and uh, he took me as his assistant. and And then he moved from being designer up to um, being over several divisions because under Stacey Ames they had the Tammy Anderson division which was where we worked the junior, and then they had the Missy, which was the Stacy Ames, and then they had another one for the larger women. So he went on to to, to work over all of those, be coordinator whatever, and I walked, went into his position as designer. Well, that's when I really it really hit me because. Um, I was given a small room to work in, no sample makers, no assistant designers to help me uh, with the patterning and cutting. It was like, you know, okay, we're going to put you in the back room and see if you can succeed. And you know me. I'm like, okay, you do this to me. You know, I I couldn't believe it. But that was the racism, and we're talking about like 66, right, by now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was devastated, but I said, no, you're not going to get me down. You're not going to discourage me. So I would be there from 8 in the morning to 9 at night doing everything myself, you know, to, to make sure I got my line done. But it became so um, painful and so humiliating, and so I quit that, and I started working off of Connie Sage on 7th Avenue. And at that point I was introduced to a lot of my all my sample makers were um Cuban and Puerto Rican and whatever. So I would go home, I'd cut my patterns, cut my do my designs, cut my patterns, cut every all the pieces and I'd have it bundled with the zippers with the interface and everything. Bundle it, bring it to work, give it to one of the stitchers. And I remember one of that the first ones that was really doing it when my line was expanding and I was getting more clients. Um, and she'd take them home and bring them back, and and that's how, how I really got my label underway.
2: I do want to touch a little bit on something that you said before. So you said uh, you kind of learned this from Arthur McGee is that you have to or, at the time, you know you had to put like a Jewish face to represent your brand because if you came, you know people wouldn't be as open or interested in listening to you. So can you talk about that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, um, well, that was what Arthur was doing myself I was work, i was um at the time just selling to small specialty stores in New York, and then I um found Allen and Cole. And I'm not sure how that happened. Was it a friend of authors, or was it author that introduced me to Allen and Cole? They were the top, one of the top um, uh, boutiques in New York, high, high class, and they dealt with their, their clientele were extremely, um, you know, wealthy or were um, celebrities. So. My clothes were selling me. I started out making handmade pocketbooks books for them, and then they asked me, well, can you do a line? And I started a line, and they became bestsellers. They were on 54th and 3rd Avenue right near Bloomingdale's. So um, there I, I was making clothes specializing, tweeting the clothes, for example, when Richard Burton's wife, Sybil, or his first wife, Sybil, was uh one, one of my pieces. Now, Sybil had a shoulder. One of her shoulders was like a half-inch low, so I had to make an adjustment there rather than, you know, the standard sizes that I'm saying these pieces were. And mm-hmm. then Tony Curtis's wife, Penny Allen, I had a uh, black-and-white plaid suit that um I was selling to Alan Nicole. She wanted the suit, but she wanted it in suede, and the pants were culottes. But she wanted it to be bell bottoms. Those are the kind of adjustments I made for like for um, Mrs Tony Curtis and then this Diane and the Diana Ross and the Supremes they bought um some of my couple of my pieces as well. but here's the deal: My clothes they treated like oh million dollars, but I had to go around the back like the cleaning lady so no one could see me. So that was an example of how I experienced in that early period of just making, starting to make um, money, and starting to have a successful collection selling out there. And later on, which was you know much a couple in the next decade actually, because a lot happened in between there. Um, I left, I left New York, went to uh, Guadalajara for about eight months, and then. Um, moved to Detroit with my first husband. And then we ended up going to Zambia. But when I came back from Zambia um, in 75, um, I had uh, a business. Um, it was it started out being my showroom and my workroom on 23rd and Park Avenue South. And I was teaching at Trapagan School of Fashion, which is very much like La Shamsen, the de la Couture Parisienne. And I was teaching there and I found this little shop was down in the subway 20 the uh Lexington Avenue subway which had that entrance was closed at the time so it wasn't any traffic so that's why it was just really mostly my showroom and my uh and my workroom well it was at that point that I got a, had a Jewish um uh representative you know who was my who was the uh, who sold my line and she sold it to a lot of high end Specialty stores, mostly Jewish specialty stores, and that's when my stuff was also, you know, moving, um, and that worked well for me because she was the representative. They didn't know who Elaine Braith was and what she looked like, you know, so that's uh, when I was doing that. And then eventually, when that um, entrance to Lexington Avenue subway opened, I was able to convert my the side which had been my showroom. To a retail space. And um, and so I was selling on one side retail and on the other side had my, my, my workroom with my workers.
2: Now you talked a little bit about going to Zambia and that was one of the most, at least to me, like your whole career is interesting, but what stood out to me the most was the fact that you were invited by the Zambian government to launch the country's first college-level fashion program. Uh, so I'd love to hear more about how that opportunity came about.
1: Okay, so yes, we, we um, my husband and I went to, this is my first husband, we went to uh, Zambia. He was working uh, in law, and he's a lawyer, was working in um, legal aid for the Zambian government i wasn't I wasn't working at the time, and then I was approached um to do some research this was by the uh, it's an agent of the uh Samian government because I guess they they uh, heard about me i there was a couple of articles in the Daily Mail with me wearing my fashions um I wasn't selling anywhere whatever at first and then um they approached me about doing some research. On the industry, because at that time uh, there were no Zambians doing any fashion or or merchandising or anything. It was the caste system. So you had um, people, the Indian people, who had the fabrics and whatever. Um, then you had most of the products being sold in stores there, coming from England. Because it was Zambia was previously an English colony, and so the Zambian government, because under Kenneth Kaunda, who was the president when I was there, um, he was interested in turning that around and giving uh, training Zambians to take over, you know, all of those those industries. And so they wanted to know, in terms of the GP, the um, the gross national product, where the money was being going to. Uh, and being spent, and uh, after doing the research, I found okay, clo- um, housing was the ma- the, ma- the main one. People were spending was number one was housing, you no know, f- you know, food, housing, and then clothing. I think that was what it was. And I had the numbers. It was quite a research project. And when they saw the numbers of what was being spent in fashion. And all of it was going out. No Zambians were benefiting. They weren't in the retail side of it. They weren't in production side. Um, they said, well, we want to establish a fashion design department. Now, realize we're talking about, this is 1972. We left in the end of 71. Um, they, uh, you know... There's nothing there that's, uh, you know, even equivalent to uh, studying anything about fashion. People had sewing, took sewing maybe in high school, and that was the extent of it. So anyway, the government asked me to, to establish this fashion design department in Evelyn Hong College, which is the biggest college in, in Zambia and um, in the School of Art. So, okay, let's let's take a look at this now. No, mach- they had a couple of sewing machines. That's about it. And if you wanted to um, get sewing machines, you had to go to England, you know, p- purchase them from in England and have them imported. There were no mannequins. There were no tools. None of the- none of that. So this is when I realized the extent of my creativity. First of all, you know, I the, in terms of mannequins, you have mannequins to teach draping. So I had my my students make their own mannequins based on their um their own bodies. The old way nobody would know what that's about. But uh, I would uh have them, you know, take um f buy, buy this gauze from the drugstore and they wrap wrap the gauze around their body and then over that they put two inch wide um brown tape, you know, glue with the, the glue back that we use now for wrapping or whatever and mm-hmm. let that dry, and then we'd mark the, all the lines, like the shoulder line, the side seam, the center front, the princess line, and then cut it open in the back. And then I had the carpenter at the school make the stands for them and um, and the crossbar that went through the, through the shoulders, through the, through the armhole. And then we made French toiles over that with those same markings to cover you know, in muslin, heavy muslin, to cover those. And then uh, that my students had mannequins that could fit their bodies and everything they made, they could, you know, it would work for the for their bodies. And the males, and they would just do, duplicate one of the female students' bodies. I had the carbon to make my uh, hip curves and my French curves and my L squares. And so that's just that side and getting set up. And then I started working on the, the curriculum and the syllabus, the syllabi, and um, and that was also when I became, became interested in the history of costume because when I was at FIT, I hated it, <laughs> and in <laughs> French, yeah, you because know, that uh, it excluded everything done by us. You know, they didn't even cover the Cometans. the ancient right. Egyptians, the, 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 the architects of fashion. So anyway, um, my students were awesome. I can't I can't even tell you. They were very excited about it and to the level that we took it, you know. Um, and I taught the draping, the pattern making, the history of costume. And then I hired a, a lady from Nigeria who taught the sewing. And then I had a, an ex from England who taught the uh, illustration. Because those were my my specialties, you know that was it was going fabulous and I was establishing establishing um contacts with people who were uh had stores and you know um were doing anything in the fashion arena and to have placement for the my students so I worked hard at that getting them jobs it it was it was just an amazing experience what can i say one of the things in terms of the the history of fashion that i did Um, I had had my students create these 13-inch dolls and they had to do research on um, clothing of African African clothing throughout the continent. So they had to do some research because they had to also um, talk to people because there were a lot of different, I mean, expatriates, they call them. uh, No, not expatriates, they would have been Zambian, uh, I'm sorry, African people living there and working there that they had to interview to get a sense of the clothing and uh, do some different kinds of research. They had to create these dolls and make the African costumes to put on the dolls. So we created this um, display, which Kenza Kaunda opened. It was in it was put in the front of the the um, School of uh, Art in cases um, where they had made a made a, what a big extension to the school, that built it up more, and he cut the ribbon for that. So all of my students' uh, dolls, which represented a different culture in Africa, were were um, at the you know entrance there in cases. So that was liberating for them because they they didn't think there was any African fashions. You know they 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 that was wiped out. There was nothing in the history books. They they all they knew was they were wearing uh, European clothes and that was hot and that was it.
2: Well, the last question that I want to ask, and it's this, is a little bit of a big question because you've had such a you know extensive career, but. If you had to narrow down, narrow it down, what would you choose as, like, the top three biggest moments of your career? And that's not just in fashion, but in education and music and the arts and culture and everything that you've done. What were the standout moments for you? Um,
1: I would certainly say uh, starting the first fashion program at the college level in Zambia. And, of course, this pro- I want you to note that this program is still going on. Nice. in Zambia and that it's, uh, it's it offers a certificate in fashion. So that was certainly one of the ones because it challenged all of my creativity, not only intellectually but creatively, um, to do. Um, that was one. I think performing throughout Europe because that really uh, began to, Allowed me to see myself other than this uh, colored person, as they called me during those those early days. As as it's an international global citizen, so it really changed how I how I saw myself, and uh, and it made me refuse to be put pigeonholed and put in this little box which they wanted me to be in, and that I continually tried to navigate around and find ways to get through it and around it without compromising who I was. Um, and while I made significant, I think, headway in those areas, I still, the whole thing of amassing money and having any kind of security was was kind of hard-reaching. So I always was doing several things at one time, you know, uh, had my business, going to school, because one thing that the teaching in Zambia taught me even though um, to the the level of what I, work I was doing, I still was not able to make much money because I had to be hired as an instructor because I only had an associate's degree. So when I came back, that was also uh, one of the things that um, I said I have to really do something in terms of my education if I wanted to teach because I was teaching at smaller fashion schools like Tropagan and... Um, Chinatown Planning Council and mayor and all of that, but not at the university level. So um, that whole piece is what morphed, you know made, forced me towards the education area because I said I found that, that the teaching was always my supplement. I had my business, but teaching at different schools, I might have three different schools I was teaching at, one on Monday night, one on Wednesday, you know, classes. Um, and um, and going to school at the same time. So that's that was always my life, school, teaching, and, um, and doing my business. I'm just trying to put this in context in terms of my growth and development and how I started on this other path of um, teaching. Um, so it was all in fashion initially, um, and when I was in New York, as I said, the store on 23rd, I had a flood, so I I lost a lot, and I ended up seeing, um, oh, I come back from Zambia, I did my bachelor's BFA at Pratt Institute of Merchandising Management. That was my first step to getting a more advanced degree because I said, all that work I did in Zambia and I got that little bit of money as an instructor. This isn't working. So um, then I took so this job at Virginia Commonwealth University uh, to set up the, a merchandising program. So that's where I went to VCU. So let me see. when I Oh, I'm at VCU. And uh, at the, that time, I was teaching merchandising, set up the courses for merchandising management, teaching some fashion courses, and co-curating the costume collection. That's where this came, this, that started. And I love that, you know, doing the exhibits and, and cataloging the costumes and all of that. And then um, I saw that FIT was starting the graduate program in museum studies, and this was 1986. Um, but I saw the, the information end of '85, well beginning of '85, when I was at BCU, and I said, "Hmm, I'm going back to New York and do my graduate degree in um, Merchant and um, Museum Studies," because I was looking at the papers. I was in, in, in Richmond '80 um, 80 to '85, mm-hmm. and I'm looking in the women's wear daily, There were no jobs for. Uh, people uh, working at the university level without a graduate degree. So I said, if I want to, you know, have a have a career here or, or a teaching career here, I better get my a graduate degree. So that's so always these decisions were, um, you know, made because uh, wanting to move forward, things were changing. You couldn't get a, a teaching job at a university. I was lucky that I just had my bachelor's when I went to VCU but um things had been changing so by the uh, mid 80s you know you had to have a a graduate degree so that's I just want to get contextualize that why the moving forward and then making the um decisions to have different jobs at different places teaching in fashion to uh support myself while I had the business cuz the business was up and down, up and down. I did retail, wholesale, mail order, because, you know, Essence had done that spread on me in 75 um, in and launched my mail order business. That's when I was at Pratt. And I remember my teacher telling me, oh, you can't sell fashion through catalogs. And I said, oh, really? <laughs> now look at it. <laughs> but anyway, that was my first catalog, on selling my fashions. That essence had promoted my dear friend susan taylor she was the beauty uh editor at the time who she went on to be the um editor-in-chief of essence
2: i remember
1: yeah so she and i were good friends um we both grew up in Queens. she lived two doors from my mom's sister and uh she had modeled for me uh in one of the productions that I did with my friend Arthur, Art 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 Lily, that was another highlight, big highlight I had. We did we incorporated music, dance, and fashion, and each scene was uh, was telling about our history as African Americans. And Art was in dancing, and I was in fashion and singing. So Susan, um, she was a little bit younger than I am, but she was one of my models for the Richie Haven scene where um, she's standing on the pillar in her black gown. (laughs) And that launched her into the fashion. She wanted to get into fashion after that. I I was down here in Austin, um, and there was no fashion business, no fashion industry. So I started doing costumes because that's all I could do. I started designing for theater companies here. And... um, and then I got a job at College of St. Edwards in the costume collect, uh, costume department um, curating the costume collection, teaching students about, you know, uh, costume design and um, designing the productions for the Mary Moody Theater, which was on campus. So that's where my theater interest came in because there was no fashion and stuff here. Uh, no fashion industry, no work that way. So I said, well, I got to morph my work into <laughs> Co- a costume, which you know was it was pretty a pretty easy fit. That's where I started doing the costume design, and then I started doing movies. Sandra Bullock came down here, and she wanted to really bring uh, the movie industry here, um, to. You know, to, first of all, the weather at that time was really good here, so it, almost any day was a sunny, good day. And um, I did the first movie, um, Two Women. It was a CBS uh, uh, documentary with uh, Angela Jolie. She she wasn't known then as anything, anything famous. That was my first film that I worked on. Um, not designing, but working, doing cut pattern design. And being a pattern designer and uh, cutting the garments for the sample makers, so I was in the industry, but they would not give me title of being uh, a, a pattern designer because pattern designers make more than fashion designers, as you know. Um, but when I would argue with the directors whenever, they said there's no category for a pattern designer. So they'd have me. If you look at all my casting sheets, I'm down as a stitcher, or sample maker even though I ran the the room so I did the first movie with Sandra Bullock um Hope Floats and that was when Forrest Whitaker had was a director of that and I and I um started again the same thing hired as a sample maker or stitcher and ended up um doing all the pattern designs and um, doing all the, the costumes for um name is the you got to forgive me sometimes, these senior moments.
2: No, you're um, okay. <laughs> Take
1: your time. Anyway, um, so anyway, I started getting more more um, calls for the, the movies because as a pattern designer, my patterns rocked. And then I did, after Hope Floats, so I did um, Spy Kids 2. Again, like with um, Spy Kids 2, I ended up doing all those. Um, the patterning, pattern designing for the major stars. So I was running the the, the sample room, made all the patterns, did the cutting, but they had me down as a stitcher. And I and I mean these are the things that I had to go to again, being a person, the only person of color in the union here. So um, after Spy Kids two, I did another movie with Sandra Bullock, um, uh, Miss Congeniality. But with that movie. I was I by that time I had my studio in my garage here, and I was had uh, a lot of stitches and assistants working for me, and um, I was doing the theater pieces as I said, but I I created my business patterns by design, and um, so they came and they asked and she looked for me and they asked me to do the patterns for the uh, the gowns, the uh, Liberty gowns. That the contestants in this congeniality was wearing. So I made the first pattern for that and uh, the first sample. And so, anyway, in other words, they hired me outside and I did several pieces. I did some pieces for Candace Rowland, uh Candace Bergman, and several pieces for, um, I'm talking to my little company, Patterns by Design. We did the uh, the outfit that Sandra Bullock was wearing for her in the contest, the white one where she was doing the bells of the water or whatever, and several other pieces that they they hired they uh, contracted my business to do, and then I actually got a part as uh, one of the judges in that film, so you'll see me there in the movie as one of the judges. So I guess that was that was a a, a way that Sandra was trying to um, give me back something because the I was left out of the credits in uh hopefuls and yeah, but that's how they did you. You became a disappeared, and it's like, oh, we're so sorry, you you know this one over and over and over in my life, and that's what's happened to most of my life, so i got kind of tired of those those fights.
0: And that's it for today's episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in again to another week of Black Fashion History. And of course, if you would like to learn more about Dr. Aziza Brathwaite Bay, make sure to check out her website, cultureandnurturance.wordpress.com. That's culture, C-U-L-T-U-R-E, and A-N-D, nurturance, N-U-R-T-U-R-A-N-C-E, dot wordpress.com and of course you can email her at bay at gmail.com so that's d-r period a-z-i-z-a-b-e-y at gmail.com and she is so sweet and so open to sharing more about her life, her experiences, sharing about fashion and culture. So definitely reach out to her if you would like to learn more. She is currently working on a memoir so stay tuned and of course I'm going to announce it when that comes out. And as always make sure to follow us on Instagram at Black Fashion History Podcast, where we post images of our guests and of the topics that we talk about so you can see them in person. And tune in again next week to hear more Black Fashion History. Bye bye.